welcome to another episode of What is Now, your favorite podcast at Patio. And as a reminder, we gather here bi-weekly on Tuesdays with different guests or just myself to talk about different types of topics, community, identity, lifestyle, politics, beauty, aka everything. And as you probably have noticed in most episodes, I invite different types of very interesting people throughout my life. And our guest today is one of those very interesting people that I've met in life, specifically in New York. And as you have noticed by now, this is a very New York-centric podcast. So if this doesn't apply to you or certain references don't apply to you, more than happy to answer questions via DM for when y'all visit. Um, but today's guest, going back to that because I can derail real quickly, she is Sarah Hassan, and we first met at work a couple of years ago when we worked in fashion. Um, feels like a thousand years ago, pre-pandemic. We bonded a lot. She was technically my manager, but we became friends, and she can attest to all of this. Um, we've been through a lot of ups and downs, obviously, with COVID in between all of that. We've been through fun experiences, breakups, stories, travel times. Sarah has moved a couple of times. I've moved a couple of times. Um, but she's a magical human being that has a lot of talent and interests. And we can talk from a very intellectual topic up to the dumbest shit. And that's just the only types of friendships I ever want for the rest of my life. Amen. And I will give you the floor <laughs> so you can introduce yourself and tell us who you are. Well, I am just so excited to be here. I am so thrilled that you are doing this podcast in general. I think it's so important. I think you're just shining a light on such interesting people, like you said, but also, you know, contemporary city living, communities, the evolution of community. What does that even mean anymore? And I just... I always describe Ismelka to my friends as I just I just say she walks the walk and she talks the talk. She Ooh. does what she says she's going to do. She mm. truly believes what she says. She's fierce about what she believes. I mean, I've heard you speak on other people's podcasts and I've always been so impressed just with your insight oh and your your intellect and your, you know, even just your way of saying things. Mm. You make me want to be more actively engaged in my own community and you make me think about my own identity a lot so Aww. yeah it's just this it's is a gonna great... start emotional real quick I mean, don't, get, <laughs> don't get emotional it's, we're just here to have some good old-fashioned fun um but like Ismelka said I'm Sarah Hassan I was born and raised on Long Island New York which is some of you might know where that is. A lot of people have no idea where it is, and that's totally fine. Um, I grew up in the same house that my mother grew up in. I grew up in a very diverse part of Long Island, um, public school kid right here. I grew up with my grandparents in the same house as me, which was wonderful. My mother is American. My father is born and raised in Afghanistan. He was born in Kabul. So that's where the Hassan comes from which always um, shocks a lot of people when they first see me because I am very white. 
But I always say, if you put a black and white photo of myself next to my father or any of my father's relatives, you see the resemblance real quick in the bone structure. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was, you know, raised in New York. I went to Sarah Lawrence College after high school, graduated with my BA in 2009, and then went into the Peace Corps. It was a recession. Times were tough. I was just happy to have a job, so I packed off and went to Mongolia for nine and a half months Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. lived in a yurt in lower Siberia. I was about two hours from the Russian border teaching English. And um, after, yeah, almost about about 10 months, nine and a half months, I came back to the States and I came back home, right back home to my Mm -hmm. childhood home, Mm -hmm. lived with my mother and my stepfather and um, started working in the city. I was working in hospitality at the time again 2010 times were tough you just needed a job 100 percent i was happy after that recession you know i worked like four days a week 6 a.m to 3 p.m at a hotel in midtown um and then after 10 months of that i just felt like oh my god my Mm -hmm, life's purpose mm -hmm. what am i doing and went to visit a friend of mine at the time who was living in london and working for an auction house And I think after a week with me complaining about how I wasn't doing anything meaningful with my life at the ripe old age of 23, um, she just said, please stop complaining. I'll, I'll call someone in New York and got me in touch with a colleague of hers who needed an intern. So, you know, a college education, a stint in the third world. And uh, hospitality led me to the illustrious four-month internship at a global auction house. <laughs> I don't think you're allowed to do internships the way that I did it because I, I, I think I got paid in a metro card, but I was there uh, every day. <laughs> was there every day for yeah. four months? <laughs> I mean, usually internships are at least from my time, like 2012 and stuff. Didn't even pay you at all. So yeah, they, I mean, I they guess didn't get, we didn't get paid. Yeah, but you kind of answer this just going back to the beginning. Yeah. You kind of answer what I ask everyone that comes yeah. in. Um, what your patio or your community was growing up yeah. versus what it is now. Which I mean, that can be very different for most of us. Yeah. I would say. Um, but would love to learn more about that. And you kind of answered it a little bit already. A little bit. But, I mean, I always, I mean, I'm going to make myself sound super ancient saying this, but I always, <laughs> in I look back now and I think, my God, I feel mm-hmm. like I had one of the last truly innocent childhoods. You know, again, I, I lived in my mother's house that she grew up in with my grandparents upstairs and my mom, dad, and my, my younger brother and I occupying the first floor. And I lived on a dead end, and I knew everybody on the block growing up. We all played in each other's front yards and backyards in the street. You know, we would roller skate. We'd ride our bikes. There was a nature preserve at the end of the block that was always a little shifty to go into. You know, it was a lot of, like, the a high sc- they were like the high school kids cut through that on their way home, and you just knew whatever those high school kids were doing was not good. But even just having that at the end of the block was very magical, you know? It's like, oh, the enchanted forbidden forest. Um, But it was a very sweet adolescence, you know? It was a lot of barbecues and block parties. My mother's family was, you know, quite scattered, but one of her 
brothers. My uncle lived in New Jersey, so we spent a lot of time there. Jersey strong. Jersey strong for Ismelka. <laughs> I had to I had to mention it, you know. Ismelka can appreciate it. Mm. Um, and then, you know, just having my grandparents in the house, I never had babysitters. I never had, you know, mm. any sort of strangers coming in and out and it was really nice. It was really nice to grow up in that environment. And what was it like to grow up with parents with complete different cultural backgrounds? It was very interesting because my father's family is mostly in California. I'd say 95% of his family is in San Diego. Mm -hmm. So the only family we would see, you know, the, the most mm -hmm. direct family, you know, when they would come to visit, and that was few and far between. It's a big family. It's a lot mm -hmm. of traveling. But I have very vivid memories of going to, there was one house on Long Island, and then there was a house in Flushing in Queens that we used to mm -hmm. go to a lot. And I remember being mm -hmm. like seven years old and dragged to a party, and the whole house is, you know, carpeted with the long Afghan runners, and the, the mm -hmm. smells of the food was just, I mean, the way these women cooked and still cook, it's just, it's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And there'd always be just a whole living room full mm -hmm. of men laughing, which really sounded more like cackling and screaming when they really got into it. We know we, how it is. You know how it is. <laughs> and a lot of rapid fire Farsi, which I sadly do not speak. My father did not teach my brother and I Farsi. His excuse was we didn't live in an Afghan household. Therefore, now we're the only of our cousins who don't speak Farsi. Which, um, you know, I've expressed my frustration with him many times, so I don't want to put him on blast. But, you know, it was, it was very, um, it was always very interesting to go to these homes knowing that these people belong to a part, uh, you know, these people belong to a culture and were from a country that was directly related mm -hmm. to me and my father and my bloodline, but... I felt so far removed, right? Because I didn't right. look like them and I couldn't speak the language. But it was always fun. I mean, it was always wild. Like, it was always music and Bollywood movies and have some tea and go play upstairs and a lot of that. Right, right. But, you know, you take my mother or any sort of American person and put them in this situation where they're just in a room of, with people that they can't understand for like six or seven hours at a time until maybe three o'clock in the morning. It's a little intense. Um, I used to go to weddings with my family. I'm sure those were lit. They were lit, <laughs> but I remember I would be in the bathroom of the banquet hall and people like women in the bathroom would ask me if I was lost or who was I with? And then I would tell them who my father was and they'd be like, oh my God, oh Zia. Oh. So it was just, you know, you're a stranger in a strange land, but it's your own land. Right, right. So it created for a really interesting adolescence. And also there aren't a lot of Afghans in general, let alone America, let alone you know, there's a there's a diaspora community, of course, in New York, but it's not like the Puerto Rican community. Right, you know, it's right. not like it's a culture that just by osmosis and, that you yeah. understand and, and are around, you know, as yeah. a New Yorker. Like as a New Yorker, and it's one of the reasons why I love New York, you just grow up knowing about so many different cultures and countries and languages that right. a lot of people right. in America don't. 
And we're very privileged. We're very privileged in that. The exposure Mm -hmm. you get here is really unparalleled. Um, And, but also on the other side of that, after 20 years of being involved with Afghanistan, plenty of people don't even know where it is. I mean, everyone still thinks it's the Middle East and it's not. So it was interesting to be, you know, half, half from a culture and a place and have, a, a, you know, a parent that was from a culture and a country and a place that people really didn't have any idea of. And mm-hmm. if they did, maybe mm-hmm. their parents did because, oh, the Soviet mm-hmm. invasion, oh, I had a friend who left Afghanistan and right, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then, of course, we get to 9-11. Right. Which I was going to get to that part, of course. After 9-11, obviously, there was a target in the back of brown people in general, of course, but from specific countries, one of them being Afghanistan, of course. Of course. So although you are white passing, like you mentioned, like, have you dealt with profiling by your last name, certain features that you have? I know we've spoken about this in the past, but I think it'd be interesting for people to just hear from the source directly. I mean, absolutely. I um, I mean, flying from the age of 15 to now is still a delight. You know, I never know if they're going to flag me for whatever reason. For a long time, all of my tickets would say, you know, they'd have the quadruple S on them, like the super secondary security search. I'd be mm-hmm. flying to like Bangor, Maine, and they'd pull me aside. It was hilarious. Um, I've definitely been, you know, my shoes are always wiped down. My hands have been wiped down. I had a, I had a security guard in Portland once check my hair, like I had a bun, and she just was like, just protocol, ma'am. And I was like, do what you got to do. Um, and... <laughs> You know, traveling to different parts of the world is always interesting. I recently traveled to Israel, and that was a little hysterical for my mother, who I kept saying, please don't make a scene, because they will either detain me or ask me questions. And, of course, the second they were taking their time, my mother was, like, calling from the other side of the security barrier. And I'm thinking... Because we talked about this, you know. But like she can't happens. help it. You know? Yeah. She can't help yeah. it. Because I could tell they were... My name is Sarah Hassan. It's like Jane Smith, you know, for the Middle East yeah. and Central Asia and all of that. There are a lot of Sarah Hassans running around. I'm not the only one. I think there's actually a very famous Sarah Hassan who's a Kenyan news reporter. Oh, there we or go. Or something. So there's someone I have the same name with. But, um... So traveling's always been interesting, but, you know, you sort of get over it. Um... I've never received direct face-to-face, you know, confrontation or discrimination, again, because I'm white passing, but I definitely received some very interesting, um, shall we say, like, digital messages over the years. Yeah, like online bullying, Like online bullying in a secret message box in Facebook, you know, things (laughs) like that. I remember clicking on it once and... I saw all of these messages from people I didn't know who they were, but they were all very incensed about my name, and I don't know who they thought I was or what I was attached to. But, you know, just one glimpse of that was enough to make me ill over what many people have received face-to-face, not just digitally, their entire lives. You know, when you really see... 
the vitriolic hatred a complete stranger can have mm-hmm. for you based mm-hmm. on something racial mm-hmm. or cultural or religious or whatever it is, mm-hmm. it really does open your eyes to how other people experience the world on a daily basis. A hundred percent. And that kind of reminds me of, I'm not sure if you ever watch any of the shows or comedy send-ups with Hazan Minaj. Oh yeah, I love him. But I mean, him. I love him, obviously, you know, he's a brown man who's Muslim, grew up in San Diego. Actually, we love kind him, of like yeah. your family. Exactly. And but Hassan, he, you know, just switch it yeah, up. Yeah, like he kind of in one of his, you know, stand-up episodes and on Netflix, he mentioned a very sad story of, like, pre-9-11, obviously, he was, like, the brown kid at his school, exactly. whatever. Exactly, just the brown but kid. after 9-11, it was just kind of, like, he was, like, everything shifted. Absolutely. To the point that, like, there were people throwing rocks at his house, like, yeah. throwing rocks and things at his parents' cars, like, trying to physically be violent towards yeah. them because the other them within their neighborhood as it was. And after that thing, she's got a little bit violent and incredibly horrible for a lot of people, like you said. And And overnight, you know, overnight, overnight. people who, you know, had nothing to do with any of this clearly or Mm -hmm. any of the problems that we were currently facing back then. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just such an interesting thing right about the human condition this need to lash out against total strangers um my brother definitely dealt with you know racism and harassment and I'm sure my father has I mean my father's also very private and you know deals with his struggles yeah like you know on his own as many as many men of his generation and culture do but I know that they're in the few the few instances he's told may have been shocking and horrible and right right I feel the same way even with my dad's family although not Afghan and not the same exact experience at Mm. all um but you know like my family I think went through a lot in DR before they even moved to the U.S. and then they went through a lot of discrimination one moving to New York in the 70s and the 80s that I've learned as an adult yeah because they don't like like you said they're more reserved they don't want to talk about it they just don't want to talk about it but I think also like the other part of that generation too is like they're like, okay, we came here, we know we're different, we're going to have to deal with it. Yeah. Whereas I think our generation may be more open about being like, this ain't right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're going to say something. Yeah, there's and- a right way and a wrong way to uh, deal with assimilation right. and right. Um, a, a, an entire family's attempt to assimilate into right. a very foreign exactly. culture. Exactly, and like, you know, that's obviously like a like topic we can go on for a thousand yeah. years. Absolutely. But going back to my second question from the beginning um we talked about you growing up you grew up um you know in a very diverse community in long island which is a beautiful thing um but also i would love to know more about your trades your community now Mm. and you know how you've got there i know and i can describe it to people but sarah has done everything in the arts world, mm-hmm. like everything, you've been a writer for Bazaar magazine. If I'm saying that right, yeah, I Harper's say- Bazaar Arabia. Has Harper's an art- Bazaar. They have a art. Jesus. <laughs> Harper's Bazaar <laughs> Arabia has a wonderful like, art magazine. As someone who worked in fashion, I should have said that right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let it slide. It was Harper's Bazaar Arabia. Arabia, too. which. Arabia. Look, 
amazing. It's a great um, gig. You worked in auction houses. You worked in actual styling, and that's where we work together. Um, yeah. I think you've done it all. You also do belly dancing on the side, mm-hmm. which I want you. I want you to do some of that coming up. We need to talk about <laughs> that post podcast. Totally. Um, so, can you tell me more about how you were involved? in the arts were like sure did that have to do with your interests growing up like that have to be do with the community that you're in now that makes you feel comfortable in sharing that interest and all of that absolutely I mean I was I grew up in a very um a very accepting household I was you know the firstborn the golden child oh you know Sarah whatever she wants mm-hmm. but not in a um overly indulgent way that led me to believe I was entitled to everything it made me want to be amazing like it made me want to be a great person you know it made me want to be an artist and a thinker and you know this everything we're reading history this books. champion exactly like I was ready I was ready for the Ivy League at like 10 I was so ready but I, I relate to that yeah I mean it's just you know and also wanting to make my, my parents and my grandparents who were so supportive and loving um, very proud but I grew up in a very um, it was a very openly artistic household in the sense that not that my family were artists but I was taught to read at a very young age and I became a voracious reader and my grandmother raised me essentially on movie musicals so I did a lot of tap dancing and ballet and showtime classes and I played the violin and the piano and then I played Damn. the cello in high school. Well, I, I did would, not even know any of I this know. Part. I mean, because if I picked up a violin or a cello, well, maybe the cello, but violin and piano, it's it's a nightmare. I could, I, I don't even know if I could do anything now. But in high school, I was doing the comp- the statewide competitions for piano, mm-hmm. and I could, mm-hmm. you know, play by ear and all these amazing things that you just sort of lose, I guess, as you get older and don't do them as often. But so that being said, I loved art, I loved music, I loved dance, I loved reading, I loved authors, you know. I just wanted to soak everything in. And then I had the proximity of New York City. I was 40 minutes outside of the city. So by the time I was in junior high, that's where I was going on the weekends. I didn't have a car, I couldn't drive yet. But I lived across the street from the Long Island Railroad. So that's where I went. That's actually really cool. It was great, you know. For suburb of you kids, you live right. Like, right across yeah. the street from the train. So the city has always been my North Star. New York City has always been one of the greatest loves of my life. I feel so fortunate to live here as an adult and work here as an adult and have had a very, you know, long and interesting career here. But... Yeah, it, it art was just a normal, expected thing for me my entire life. I just loved it, and no one was telling me I needed to be a lawyer or a doctor Thank or God. a teacher <laughs> or whatever. They just, yeah. they always told me that my writing was my power and my talent, and I started writing when I was very young. My mom still has picture books I made in kindergarten mm-hmm. that clearly don't have words in them. They just have letters and pictures. Mm-hmm. But I took that very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I was I was a very um, supported and encouraged child that became a very mm-hmm. supported and encouraged young adult. And, of course, I went through my 
goth emo phase like everybody does and then the internet happened and it was a volatile time and I there was MySpace there was MySpace there were concerts chat rooms with strangers I mean what were we doing unsupervised but I survived you know I survived and we're here we're here we're here and we're thriving that's all that matters but um yeah so of course then going to college and getting accepted to Sarah Lawrence that was like the key to a whole new world for me. Right. That that made me understand so much more about myself, but also question everything I didn't know, right? I just, I got to Sarah Lawrence that. and all of mm-hmm. a sudden, I wasn't the unique one. We were all the unique kids and we all congregated together. I feel like so. there are certain people, and that's why I love talking to you, especially about college, because for me too, it was like such a formative it was time an incredible time. Incredible And I feel like time. you completely understand that part, especially at a school. Well, you went to small school, so that's a little bit different. But I feel like you were able to, one, find your people. And I Absolutely. remember even, like, one time we went to dinner with all these people you went to school with. Yeah. And we were talking about, like, different museum exhibits. We mm-hmm. were talking about politics. We were talking about everything. And I'm like... I love this. Yeah. Like, I love this for you. I love that you were able to form that community that you're still in touch with. But people that are, you know, incredibly educated, they're curious. I think that's, like, the number one thing sometimes. Curiosity. Curiosity sometimes trumps intelligence 100%. Absolutely. It trumps everything. Because if you're curious, the world is open to you. Exactly. You can be the most privileged, rich, educated person on the planet but if you're not curious about anything your life is going to be not as varied as any you know someone else's who's curious because curious people always find a way oh yeah so you might not have the money at the time but you'll figure out a way to get to the place of your and, dream and this can know? apply to i mean obviously like interests like are all those things we just spoke about but this can apply to jobs absolutely like how many jobs did i start that at first how I many like- jobs have i had i've had so many <laughs> jobs i mean i kind of had this revelation maybe a month or two ago where i just realized you know because there's so much there's so much internet chatter and TikTok speak and, you know, newsreels and Wall Street Journal headlines about what work is and what careers are and what you should be doing and what you should strive for. And I kind of realized in reading all of this noise, really, I just thought my career has really just been being myself and wherever I'm the most useful as myself, well, that's where I'll go. Exactly. Like the title and the company... Sure, would it be really sexy to have, like, executive vice president of, you know, top hill thing, whatever? Sure. And make a crazy fat salary? Great. But that's not what interests me. Because I've also met a lot of those people, and I don't want their life. And... (laughs) Yeah. You know, and that's the thing. It's like if you want that fatty paycheck, you you better learn how to exist on very little sleep most of the time. And I that's, mean, yeah. That's yeah, not exactly. where I am in my life. I enjoy looking younger than I am. Um, <laughs> but really, really, oh, not to cut you off, but just really, I say this to also stress to people who perhaps feel like they don't have a singular path or they haven't gotten to where they want to be or they're not doing what they should be doing, Mm. 
there really are no rules. You have to do the things that are the best for you. And look, you're talking to someone without a trust fund. You know, I'm a single, <laughs> I'm a single woman, you know, with one salary living in one of the most expensive places in the world. Like I've hustled and I've had multiple jobs at times and I've done everything I can possibly do. Let to it be known. Make it work. Let it be known. Exactly. But at the same time, I've come to realize if you can create a life that you love around a job that gives you what you need, that's everything. And mm -hmm. I think or I hope at least that the pendulum is swinging the other way for people where they're realizing it's not going to say executive vice president on your tombstone. If that's your North Star, fantastic. Mm -hmm. But you're not going to measure the quality and beauty of your life by the titles and the places where you've worked. I think I needed to hear this today. It's true, though. <laughs> I mean, you're, you'll remember the quality and the beauty with the people you were around, yeah. the people you were working with, and perhaps the work you were yeah. doing, yeah. which might not sound incredibly sexy on a resume. I mean, I can speak from current experience. I'm a bookkeeper, a job title that I never thought I would have, or a job title that didn't interest me at all, but I'm a bookkeeper at a place and in an environment that I love and stimulates me with a team that just brings me such joy every but day. But also work-life balance. And my work-life balance. Which I, I think Gen Z, though, not going to lie, they're actually, like, appreciating that more than absolutely. millennials. And I'm talking absolutely. millennials, like, the range. The range. Like, I'm a... I'm on, like, the younger millennial range yeah. up to, like, I'm talking millennials that are, like, 40 and have kids. Mm -hmm. Like, I think we've been told and groomed into being, like, the best of the best, like, the girl bosses, yeah. which we all and know. We can't Gen all Z be doesn't the, believe in that. Yeah, because guess like, what? We all can't be the best. It's just not possible. Yeah. And why would we? That's not interesting. There's mm -hmm. so much more to be said about existing in sort of the shades of gray of life. And in the ebbs and flows in those different seasons. Right. So, you know, wannabe girl bosses take note. If that's your dream and your North Star right. and you go to sleep thinking about it and waking up thinking about it, please do it. Exactly. But for all of those who are thinking, I really don't, don't need do to be a girl or guy boss. <laughs> Just a boss? Boy I'm boss. not sure. I'm just I a mean, boy boss? <laughs> yeah, whatever. Whatever. We destroy the term we, Yeah. If you, you know, but if you don't want to be a boss and you just, you just want to be able to take care of yourself and, and be healthy and have time and for like the things you life. love and live life and be with your friends sometimes. Like, usually, like... It's okay. We're not, we're not able to do that if we're too busy. And, like, one thought that I wanted to bring up earlier is that in one of my feminist college classes, and I think I mentioned this on my Instagram at some point, like, a couple of weeks ago, um, but my one of my professors said, like, the modern woman wouldn't only have one career path. 100%. Wouldn't only be one thing. And I completely agree with that because so I think true. so many people get so fixated on either being in one industry or doing one thing Absolutely. or doing only one type of job. And like I've done kind of like the same type of job, like that's evolved in, you know, in all the years that it works, but it's been in multiple industries. Exactly. And I'm always okay with that. Like I'm always As curious. You be. There's always something to and learn I from other like, industries exactly. and, and environments. I mean, this is why people who, you know, leave a job or leave an industry, they have a crisis of, of faith and identity because they build their entire 
existence for, you know, and their entire reason for existence around this thing. It's one of the reasons why, like, Chef's Table makes me cry every episode because I'm so in awe of people. I've never watched that show. Oh, my God, is Malcolm. We'll get to that. We'll get to that later. <laughs> off, off, off the record. Off the record. I'll talk to you about that later. But it makes me cry, and I get really emotional watching it because you watch these people who have dedicated, like, 35 years of their life to perfecting bread. And I'm so in awe of that dedication and what it really takes to wake up and do that every day. But I also cry a little bit because I go, I could never do that. I have so many interests and I'm, I'm like at the whim of these interests all the time. One day I'm obsessed with this piece of music I found. Another day it's a painting I found. The, and the next day it's a short story someone's given me and I then have to like deep dive the author. And then I'm looking at pictures of where they're from. And then I'm looking at the house they grew up in and do they do tours. And I go on these whole Are they on apartment therapy? Yeah, are they on apartment? I mean, maybe they're dead. I'm not sure. But I get very emotional. I'm very moved by people's singular passion. So I, I say this also not to discourage and discredit anyone who believes that their life's purpose or goal is one yeah. path. That's amazing. But I don't think it's for everyone. And that's where the sort of modern myth of career and uh, air quotes life purpose needs to be turned on its head a little bit yeah like but you I, need to pat it a little bit yeah I also <laughs> could blame social media for making everyone believe that they have to be extraordinary in every aspect of their life as well because we all know that's not true you can say social media is fake and, until you're blue in the face but people are absorbing and taking in images every day that would suggest otherwise, you know? So mm -hmm. it's, um, it's, it's a strange yet exciting time we live in. But, um, as someone again, who's had multiple jobs and most of them have been very art related. I've worked in auction for over 12 years. I've moved to Atlanta for auction. I've moved to Santa Fe for auction. I've worked in New York City at one of the big houses and got that whole experience and then went into, you know, retail and the styling side of things and have written for different magazines and interviewed artists and designers and photographers and <clears throat> had to think critically about work that I could never produce, you know. Um, it's all related. All of it spoke to each other, mm -hmm. even if I mm -hmm. couldn't tell at the time what it was yeah. doing. Um, and now I'm in an environment that inspires me and stimulates me, even if my job is a little more routine and expected and straightforward, which quite honestly, if you're in the art world, you know, you don't get that type of job very often. It just allows me to have room in my life for mm -hmm. the things I'm passionate again, like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. writing and going to the museums and yeah. going to live yeah. music and performances. And I can actually take a breath and, you know, see friends and not just spend the whole time complaining yeah, about my 100%. job or whatever. And with now you saying that you've interviewed artists, you've talked mm -hmm. to different types of, you know, talented people for interviews and everything... 
Um, I'm assuming a lot of them also being New York based or not New York based. That Many, brings me back yeah. to the idea of how we all romanticize New York oh and we God. think of the artist era like Basquiat, oh like God. Andy Warhol, like Studio 54, like that. I mean, Fran Lewis. Yeah, I mean, our girl, our girl. Oh, we love Fran. Fran, um, call me. But do you think, like, in today's day and age, we can kind of replicate, not replicate, but kind of mimic that time of New York artistry because I feel like nowadays it's a little bit different. Like we're not like obsessing over just like five main artists that ended mm. up making it. But now there are like so many more artists and now oh we have God. influencers. Now we have content creators. Like that There's has so really evolved. Yeah. Um, so in your perspective, like how has that changed Can we still romanticize New York for that? Or you think it's, you know... I, You know, that's such a good question. I don't know question. where I'm getting to, but... I, I, think, I think I know where you're getting to. I mean, as someone who definitely romanticizes a past they had nothing to do with and were never a part of, <laughs> mainly 1950s, 1940s New York, 60s, sure, but yeah, definitely 70s, disco, grunge, glam, like 90s, beautiful yeah. punk rock, fabulous... Poet, beat poets, whatever. Yeah. Um, could we replicate it? No. There's no possible way. Because people were living very different lives, you know. They were working in coffee shops and bookstores and writing, you know, zines and riding the subway and, right, you know, driving taxi yeah. cabs. And the, and the quality of life and the cost of living was different. So, I mean, what do you expect? It's like New York is always going to be a boiling pot melting pot, you but, know, yeah. smorgasbord of life and creativity for everyone. But, I mean, I would always say to people, and I think Fran Leibowitz would echo this, you know, don't come to New York unless you have a little bit of money. Like, New York is not the type of place where you're just going to get in with a few artists off the street and all of a sudden your mm -hmm. life is going to be party monster every day. I mean, if that happened to you, call me. I'd love to hear about it. <laughs> But... Well, this is a very different age. You know, like you said, we live in the age of influencers and content creators and people who like what? would have never had a platform. The definition of R has changed a little. Absolutely, because now, I mean, the, in the internet and social media have done this incredible thing where it's given everyone a platform. Mm -hmm. And it's a good mm -hmm. and a bad thing, right? right? Because back in the day, you had the gatekeepers, you had the editors, and that was, the, that was power and prestige and... Who oh, you the could magazine let in. era, yeah. The magazine era, oh my God. I mean, the book publishers, who was getting in print, who I was mean, allowed in the club. Even when was... I moved to New York, I romanticized that era. Totally. Like, I romanticized, like... It was pretty romantic. You know, yeah, like, all these photographers being, like, famous and, like, notable and, like... I mean, even, like, Their film producers, like, and Spike, having... Spike Lee's from Brooklyn. Oh, like, yeah. But, again, Basquiat, like, Andy Warhol, like, I can mention, like... So, so many, many people in one moment that remind me of, like, New yeah. York back in the day. But there are other things that we don't think about, like you said. Like, we don't think that, like, like you said, they had regular everyday jobs. Yeah. We're only romanticizing the cool part. The cool part. I mean, you know, Fran did. talks about, you know, driving a cab. How many wannabe writers want to drive a cab right now? <laughs> I mean, truly. But... I also romanticize, I mean, I'm a big, I'm a Joseph Mitchell lover, and he was a famous writer for The New Yorker, who also famously had 
writer's block for about 30 years after he published some Sounds of like his Sounds like Frank most. Ocean, but the Yeah, Frank I mean, we can't put everybody on blast tonight. But <laughs> Joseph Mitchell wrote about, you know, some of the most iconic types of New York characters, the, the fortune tellers, the street preachers, the fishmongers, the ticket takers. And then, of course, it came out later that, you know, some of his most famous stories were actually amalgamations of characters he had met. They weren't fully true, but, you know, it was more like one person was really ten. That doesn't bother me because I also know that the time he was writing about, you, that was, you know, I, I believe him when he describes the scene. Let's put it that way. So I kind of romanticize, like, a little bit of the gangs of New York, turn of the century, early, you know, tens and twenties New York, where, like, all these immigrant communities were coming together. Like Great Gatsby gangs? Great kind of what? Great Gatsby gangs, but really like the Lower East Side, the Bowery, where you just went to pubs and the Salvation Army and you went to the peep shows in the cinema and were you going to get robbed? I don't know, but let's go dancing. <laughs> I mean, it's just, yeah. That's I the mean, part Times Square before Judy, Giuliani cleaned it up. Um, but. You we know. don't like Giuliani, but No, yeah. we don't. We don't. Um, I <laughs> wish Times Square wasn't so clean. Um, but that's really the New York I love to see. That was definitely different. That I was mean, different. Yeah, 100%. But it's, I think, to go back to your question, because I could talk about New York all day, I think the age in which we're living is a lot more... Um, it's like soft reactionary, you know? The art isn't as desperate, I think. That's being made. Like you think of uh, David w- w- Wojnarowicz and uh, Peter Hujar, who were photographers and lovers, and and both died of AIDS. And and David's work was so. I mean, he was angry. He was angry. He saw what the AIDS crisis was doing in his community. He mm-hmm. knew he was going to be taken out by it. And it was you just see the fierceness. And the the brief flame that existed in these artists, right? They were getting to the point very quickly because they didn't have a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And now, and maybe this is just my experience of working in the commercial art world, a lot of the work I see, yes, it's making a point, and a lot of it's making very beautiful, poignant, strong statements. But no one's making this art hoping they'll be poor forever, People want representation. They want to be in galleries. They want to be making money. And then, of course, they're going to hate who's buying it. But as long as the check... They have to give it. As long as the check clears, you know, it's it's whoever owns it now. Mm -hmm. So I was... But, you know, I was at um, the Armory show over the weekend. I saw a lot of art that I loved. I've spoken to them for a while. I mean, we're not going to talk about that right now. No. But it's a cool show. It's a great show. Yeah. You know, people come from all over the world. The galleries from all mm-hmm. over the world. It's always very interesting to see mm-hmm. what's what the pulse is and what the temperature is and um, what people are creating and what people are putting out there and also what they're selling, you know, how they're curating their booths. But I also just feel like no age, you know, should really look to replicate anything. And I say this as someone who also has performed in the sort of throwback 1920s vaudeville scene where we were all trying to recreate the Great Gatsby era and the sort of hokum era of a big old show and come on down and see the dancing girls, which was great. And New York City definitely had an appetite for that, you know, about 10, 
10 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's changed now. People want experiences. They want to be the show, if that makes sense. Oh, they want yeah. the photo op and the lighting and the Instagram and the fit and the whole thing, which yeah. I get. Yeah. I yeah. totally get it. You know, life is a movie starring you. That's fine. But it's it's funny to look at New York through the eyes and lens as both a performer and a spectator because the performance landscape, in my opinion, has changed a bit, too. Mm-hmm. People want to go where they feel like they're the ones that are on display as, you know, instead of vice versa, where you're trying to bring them them into this immersive experience. And of course, these are all blanket statements. I'm sure plenty of people would say, absolutely not, Sarah. That's not true. I went to sleep no more 10 times this year and I just want to escape into whatever. And that's great. But I've just noticed a a bit of a trend because I'm always watching people when I go out. I watch people when I go to other people's shows. I try to see if the audience is paying attention um, and yeah. what people are really paying to see. So it's uh, it's it's gotten really interesting. But, of course, I think with COVID, too, you know, people couldn't go out. So, of course, they want to go out. And, exactly. They yeah. want to go out. They want to eat and drink and dance and look amazing and wear mm-hmm. their clothes and do everything, which I don't begrudge anyone for wanting to do that. Right. It just makes for a very different landscape as a performer and as someone who is – you know, I don't perform for free anymore. I don't expect anyone that I hire to perform for free. So it's really interesting to just sort of take the temperature of what people are willing yeah. to pay for and how much, because people now are really thinking about where their money goes. Um, so I think, you know, New York is a New York is always changing, and that's part of her charm. It's, you know, when I go to Paris, they always say, you know, oh, Paris is exactly the same, you know? Um, I, I mean, I've never been to Paris, but I'm sure it's not the same. Um, but I think, you know, coming to an end or almost coming to an end here, I know that obviously we both love New York so much, which is why this, like I mentioned earlier, a New York City adjacent podcast. Yes. Um, but I know you've lived all over the world, all over the country. What is one thing that you can think about right now that will always bring you back to New York? The accessibility of everything. When I've lived in the South, it was diversity. Well, I lived in Atlanta. Atlanta. So there was a lot of diversity in Atlanta. But once you left Atlanta, forget it. Um, (laughs) The ease ease and convenience of everything. The fact that you can walk out onto the street on any given night in New Mm. York City, as cliche as it sounds... And know that there's the possibility of perhaps something very bad happening to you, but also the possibility of something incredible happening to Mm -hmm. you. Some of my most incredible New York City evenings have happened on a random Tuesday, and I've gotten home at 3 a.m. going, my God, what a ride. And also just the fact that everybody comes here, everybody, wherever you go in the world, people know where and what New York City is. And that is, it's true. Um... (laughs) And, you know, when I was living in the Southwest, I definitely missed the diversity of culture. Um, like, I you missed, learned a lot about, I think, reservations and Native Americans. Yes, and, like, I traveled a part. lot through the Southwest. And but that in could terms be a of a, a larger, diverse bucket of people. A whole then, bucket yeah. of people that a lot of this country forget exist, which is incredibly heartbreaking mm-hmm. and, and makes me very angry now having seen it up close, driven through native land and you know the Navajo nation and past reservations and seeing the conditions of those who live there and what they have to deal with whereas the rest of the country doesn't even think of them you know Uh, I mean coming from 
coming from the East Coast and then only, you know, I lived in Atlanta, which is, you know, Southeast. Um, the West was always very um, untouched and magical and separate. Like they do their own thing out there. But then the West to me in my brain was always California. I always skipped over that whole part of the country. But now that I've Fast. lived in the Southwest and I lived there for a year, I lived there during COVID. I had a lot of time to travel and, and use my resources. It it's, has just changed me in the most profound way because I saw up close and personal really the disparity of um, resources that we allow yeah. to continue yeah. in this first world nation, especially to those who um, were here first and their ancestors can claim that. But the Southwest is some place that I think about every day. It changed me. It changed who I am for the rest of my life. I mean, I definitely can't behave the way I behave in Santa Fe in New York City, but I try to go home and be very relaxed. But I also say, I would love to say this is, as someone who's been a lifelong New Yorker and someone who just believed there was no place but New York, and we see it all the time, New Yorker nowhere, New Yorker nowhere, I would very much encourage anyone to live other places. We are very privileged in New York. We see a lot of things, but we're also very isolated in a way. We think the whole country is like us, but we also know the whole country isn't like us. And just to also <laughs> experience, battle, yeah. yeah, just to experience a different environment. You, I always say a year in New York is five years anywhere else. Facts. But if you're from New York, a year anywhere else is five years for you. You can do so much growth and introspection when you get away from the noise and bustle of New York City. And one of the things I love about the Southwest is that it's a very humbling place. Mm -hmm. The desert is vast and empty and full of things that could potentially kill you if you don't know what you're looking for <laughs> and if you run out of water and you don't know where you are. I mean, it can turn, can turn pretty, pretty dire pretty quickly. Whereas in New York, it's all about you, right? It's about you and how you fit in the world and where are you in the machine and what's the next opportunity and pick up the phone and open that door and go to that place and everything's a, everything's there, a yeah. ex exposure opportunity. Whereas when you live in a quieter place, perhaps like the desert, no one's watching you. It's no you. No one gives a fuck. No one, because there's no one there. It's you, the earth, and God, really. Yeah. And that does things to you. If you let it, you know, you can yeah. definitely go out there and have it not do things to you. But yeah. I always, I, I always think about my time there as something that really put perspective on how I feel about myself and the place that I am in the world and the type of character I'd like to inhabit. So, um I love yeah. this. Yeah. Well, this is a great way to yeah. end. Yeah, wrap it you up. You are amazing. That was, mm -hmm. again, you know, chef's kiss. Wait to end this <laughs> fabulous episode. This was um, so well, wonderful. Well, thank you for so much knowledge, as always, for sharing about your experiences that I'm always happy to hear as a friend and just as someone who admires everything that you do nice person um but yeah thank you for coming and i will see you all and is it bi-weekly yeah <laughs> not next tuesday the following as always bye y'all bye